Hello, this is Christopher Bandini, one of the co-hosts of the New Books in Psychoanalysis series. And today we're here with Sheldon Iskowitz and Elizabeth Howell, Dr. Elizabeth Howell, to speak about their book, The Dissociative Mind in Psychoanalysis, Understanding and Working with Trauma. Uh, Dr. Itzkowitz is an adjunct clinical associate professor of psychology and clinical consultant at the NYU postdoctoral program in, in, in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, guest faculty, the eating disorders, compulsions, and addictive program of the Willem Allenson White Institute, and on the teaching and supervisory faculty of the National Institute for the Psychotherapies Program in Psychoanalysis. He is an associate editor of Psychoanalytic Perspectives and a former president of the Division of Psychoanalysis of the New York Psychological Association. He's in full-time private practice in Manhattan, where he practices psychoanalysis, psychoanalytic psychotherapy, couples therapy, and provides clinical supervision for mental health practitioners. Dr. Elizabeth Howell has written extensively and lectured nationally and internationally on trauma and dissociation. She's on the editorial board of the Journal of Trauma and Dissociation, faculty NYU postdoctoral program, faculty and supervisor of the Trauma Treatment Center, the Manhattan Institute for Psychoanalysis faculty, NIP, and the honorary member of the William Allenson White Psychoanalytic Society. Books include The Dissociative Mind, Understanding and Treating Dissociative Identity Disorder, A Relational Approach, and of course, the book that we'll be speaking about today, The Dissociative Mind in Psychoanalysis. Uh, welcome to both of you. Uh, so how we uh, traditionally start here on new books in psychoanalysis is to um, speak a little bit about why you decided to write this book and uh, how you came to do it. Well, I... I became interested in dissociation in the late 80s. I read a lot of Philip Bromberg's work, but I found that trauma influenced an understanding of how masochism, what I called it then, worked, um, that trauma and dissociation explained a lot of Freudian psychology and Freudian dynamics and so this became more and more clear to me in, in my teaching and my work. And then in Dissociative Mind, I tried to lay out how the mind is structured dissociatively and went through different how dissociation is used in different models from, although it's not mentioned explicitly, from Freud to Fairbairn to Ferenczi, to through interpersonalists and then some hybrid models that dissociation, even though not named, uh, in, in, in phrases like she's beside herself, pull yourself together, he's becoming unglued, our language itself shows familiarity with dissociation, but it hasn't been focally noted. And so that's what I tried to lay out then. And uh, then... Uh, I'll let Shelley say some more, that we came in contact and collaborated. I learned about Elizabeth's work um, when, while I was in a study group uh, run by Don Stern, and we read her first book, The Dissociative Mind, and it, it just spoke to me and spoke to the work that I was doing. And I uh, called Elizabeth and invited her to be a discussant uh, at a presentation I, I gave at Division 39 many years ago. I showed a, a, a video clip of my work with a patient with DID. And then Elizabeth invited me uh, to present at the ISSTD, that's the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation, at their annual conference. And um, we've been working collaboratively since then. One issue that comes up uh, certainly at the beginning of the book is the history of dissociation and psychoanalysis. 
and uh, and and certainly related to the different ways that Freud, uh, right? We often say abandoned trauma theory early on. So maybe you'd like to speak to that. Maybe about also what dissociation has meant through the years, as well as the, as trauma theory. When Freud wrote, when Freud and Breuer wrote studies in hysteria, in the beginning part of it, there was very much about these cases where. Uh, Anna O oh probably had DID, and, uh, and especially in the preliminary communication, which was 1893, that it was clearly a theory of dissociation in which they gave partial credit to Jean A. And uh, Freud began to move away from that uh, and start to talk about repression, even in studies on hysteria. And but then after he, the, he presented etiology of hysteria in 1896, and supposedly he was shunned, his theory wasn't accepted, in which he showed that his hysterical patients had been sexually abused, and that in two of these cases it had been corroborated. And uh, he felt it wasn't accepted, and then his father died, and various things happened, and we're not really sure what it was that t- that he turned him away from this theory. Uh, Ellenberger says that it uh, it it actually was refe- received rather favorably, and but in any case, he renounced it. He never completely renounced it. He, he did never said this can never be a causative factor, but he was emphasizing repression and infantile fantasies. And uh, then dissociation was pretty much left by the wayside, um, but it still found its way. I mean, I have a chapter in the book on models of dissociation and Freud in which he, the, first, the first model was the one in which uh, the dissociation model, the second model was one of repression, the third one is superego, and the fourth is splitting of the ego. But he never talked about dissociation explicitly after that, and um, not very much. Um, and that wasn't his emphasis. And so what Shelley and I, have, we coined a new phrase, trauma analysis, because we've noticed a dissociation between the field of psychoanalysis and the trauma field. The two fields that, on the whole, we've, we've both had a foot in both camps. And I've been involved in the trauma field, especially International Society for the Study of Dissociation, of Trauma and Dissociation, and that in the trauma field, psychoanalysis is often thought of as, as Freudian psychoanalysis. And that's one of the things we're looking to, we're thinking of as it, it needs to change in terms of the basic models. But so the trauma field has tended to eschew psychoanalysis. And on the other hand, psychoanalysis has had not so much knowledge of dissociation. In fact, there are notable stories of people with DID when hospitalized, the res, the, the chief resident saying things like DID doesn't exist, and so and textbooks that say it doesn't exist, and so a dissociation has had a hard time finding its way again into the language of psychoanalysis. As another example of that, um, 
Philip Bromberg has been really a pioneer in, in bringing dissociation into the foreground of psychoanalysis. Um, but just to underscore what Elizabeth is saying, dissociation um, was non-existent uh, in the psychoanalytic lexicon for decades. And what happens in the real world was really given a backseat to the primacy of fantasy. And one of the clearest ways um, that that's seen, and we've spoken, we wrote about this in one of the first chapters, is the discussions and stories of people who came to the United States after the Second World War and were Holocaust survivors. Dory Loeb, for example, Clem Lowe, we quote them in, in the book, that, and Sophia Richmond, that their analysts were not interested in their Holocaust experience uh, as children. Um, and they were only interested in Oedipal issues, for example. Um, on a, another note, I, I think we sh- should emphasize that the idea of trauma and dissociation was really brought together by Pierre Janet. And in Chapter 4 of the book, we have an international scholar of Janet's work, Anno van der Hart, and he speaks to Janet's work and some similarities in which Janet and Freud overlap. Yes, I found that a particularly fascinating chapter, and I think a lot of the historic elements that come up in the first part of the book are really uh, very informative and very useful. I think... In the sense, the reclaiming of dissociation after uh, maybe also to speak to some of the controversy around dissociation that kind of it seems like your book is trying to work through and pass that. Yes, in, indeed. It, it's as, li- as if dissociation became verboten, uh, even though it was there clearly all the time. I mean, splitting was a word that was used uh, by many of the analysts, Fairbairn and Klein and and uh, and. Uh, Kernberg used it, but lately Kernberg has described dis- uh, splitting as a primitive type of dissociation, which it is. But different language has been used to describe dissociative processes, and and now we're getting to the place where we can say it more openly. But I think it's because it's been linked with trauma, that and trauma, especially some of the more severe kinds of trauma, such as child sexual abuse have been uh, neglected, overlooked, and actively overlooked. They've been dissociated in our society. The idea of children being abused um, and sexually abused is just very hard for any of us to acknowledge, to wrap our minds around. Um, And for the longest time, people just did not want to hear about that. Um, Another issue, I think, contributing to this is Freud's insistence on the primacy of the Oedipal fantasy and primacy of of, um, the drive defense model. And any movement away from that would result in banishment. And and we see that clearly in uh, Ferenczi's work, and his paper in the confusion of tongues, uh, and how Freud um, 
Freud offered him the presidency of the International Psychoanalytic Association if he would not read that paper in 1932, The Confusion of Tongues. But Ferenczi, being truthful to himself, went ahead and spoke about essentially, and, and Ferenczi worked with people that we believe had DID. Um, and to plug the book again, in Chapter 5, Mark Hainer, uh, who is a real expert on Ferenczi, speaks directly to the dissociation of Ferenczi in psychoanalysis. Yes, which only recently, I guess, in the last maybe 10 years or so, 15 years, uh, been a reclamation of, of Ferenczi's work. Uh, what's also interesting, I think, is that, um, in, a, in a way, this is a return to early Freud, uh, mm-hmm. in a sense of saying that, that there really is infantile trauma. I, I think the idea was, the, or some of the dissociation was about, oh, there can't possibly be that many cases, right? I remember that kind of being almost like a sense of denial, that there can't be that much sexual trauma out there. That's right. And and, interestingly, one of the things that that Freud wasn't aware of at that time is that um, many of the perpetrators are recidivists. So that it really doesn't mean that that it's a one-to-one correspondence between perpetrator and victim. There's there's still way too many perpetrators. (laughs) Maybe you could speak a little more to this idea of, uh, that while it's a return to Freud, there is a kind of a, a distinction between a one-person and two-person psycho- psychoanalysis and um, where this falls into the relational realm maybe in contrast to the one-person model. Yes, yes, that's, that's such an important question um, because one thing that especially Mitchell and others following him have been pointing out is that the mind is just is structured relationally, and the dissociative mind is also structured relationally. The mi- the internal structure of of the mind is 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 a dynamic dissociative, but it models on and in response to an interpersonal environment that the child growing up with, including the traumas that that child went through and the traumas that required a dissociative adaptation. Mitchell wrote that what happens matters. And um, if, if you just look at the attachment studies, um, how traumatized parents or parents who are ill uh, have a profound impact on the nature of the child's attachment. And, of course, disorganized attachment uh, can and does lead to dissociation. And it's a very, it, that's a very two-person oriented, it's very interpersonal, um, and it also requires the recognition of internalization. And I think it's, it's like you were commenting on, and, and many of the interviews I've done recently, uh, about the dissociation of uh, of in the field of psychoanalysis, like the, um, the disowning of the um, effect of the Holocaust, for instance. Mm-hmm. And, and in a sense, how the field has dissociated throughout, throughout time. Um, even the idea of kind of staying in a one-person theory and staying with the kind of a, the Oedipal complex is in some way kind of a dissociative maneuver or, or defense against kind of the other things that are going on. It's a, maybe controversial to say that, but. It isn't. But I, ironically, the, the theory that Freud the part of the story of Oedipus that Freud wrote about 
left out, dissociatively left out the early story, which is that Oedipus's father, King Laius, he had been abusing uh, the, uh, the son of a neighboring king, and there was then a curse laid upon him that his son would murder him and marry his mother, for Laius's wife. And so he had Oedipus sent out to be murdered with his feet bound. So Oedipus means swollen foot, that there were piercings through his ankle. And then he was found and brought up by, uh, he was found by a shepherd and later brought up by the, a neighboring king. Uh, and then you know the rest of the story. But that part, infa- you know, infanticide, the wishes, was left out. Just to jump back to Ferenczi for a second, Ferenczi went to Freud before the International Conference to read um, The Confusion of Tongues because he thought he was honoring Freud. And, of course, he was honoring Freud's seduction model. Um, And I I don't think Ferenczi really got the idea clearly enough that Freud wanted nothing to do with that. Uh, Freud thought he was being... Um, mistaken and not understanding his own later model and thought he was reverting to his discarded, now disproven model. Which brings me to think about uh, some of the uh, chapters mentioned abreaction as kind of part of the, I guess, part of something that might have been curative to trauma or that that was part, was there a disownership of abreaction or kind of was it found not to go far enough? That's a really, really fascinating question. Because uh, abreaction is, is, is so important, and the way they were describing it in preliminary communication is that systems of, dissoci- of dissociated affect and thought get closed away, and as they're brought to the fore in communication with the analyst through words, that the dissociative parts get, get reconnected with reality. And so that in that way, abreaction there's an emotional part to it, but there's also a cognitive part, and that's something that Anno van der Hart has written a lot about. But this then became actually talk therapy. Was Anna O's invention was chimney sweeping, which became talk therapy. So abreaction is a very important part of the work, but I think what one of the things that happened is that people began to think that that's what was needed. And that's just a small part of the work. Um, and in fact, it has to be managed very carefully within the analytic context because it is hyper-arousing, it, it is overwhelming, it leads to more, it can lead to more dissociation. And so the clinician has to handle the reactive process very carefully. I suppose this also brings to mind, the, with as we're talking about dissociation and trauma, uh, Multiple, the multiples and multiplicity and multiple personality and also kind of the controversy around that over years and, and how that's addressed in the book as well. That's really interesting and it's very important because uh, we both, uh, along with Philip Bromberg, see the basic model for the psyche, the prototype for personality disorders and the dissociative structuring of the psyche um, as the prototype is DID, even though, I mean, this is not saying that we're all multiples, but that, that we all are dealing with dissociation. And one of the things about amnesia 
is there's amnesia for amnesia. So how do we know? <laughs> there, there's a lot about ourselves that we don't know. And so it's, it's a basic model, and, and it's a very different model in some ways from what we've been working with. Um, it, it, it gives us a new way to start thinking about how the psyche is, is structured in terms of, of trauma, and, but also it's a dynamic structuring that's more complex than superego theory. It also, uh, I think, takes, um, the, makes the assumption that the mind, the, the sense of oneself as being singular and bounded, is a developmental achievement. We're not born with that sense of, of ourselves. That's something we have to work towards, and of course that happens within the context of loving, secure attachment. Well, well I think one of the uh, one part that's confusing about about that is the difference between uh, multiple about self states and multiple personality, um, and what the distinction is. And I think people seem to go back and forth, or, or maybe use them interchangeably. Yes, it's it's an issue of dissociation that we have multiple self states. And ideally, I mean, it's like concentrating on something, and you're ho- there's a slice of the self that's involved in a particular context, in a particular kind of relationships, in particular kind of memories of certain kind of relationships, and, and it's also contextualized in other ways. But ideally, it's connected to other self-states, just like we can shift our attention. And, but when we talk about dissociated self-states, that's something else. Now we have slices of the self that are not connected to each other and that don't have access to each other and then are not communicating with each other. So the extreme of that is DID. And uh, what we're working with, it, whether it's DID or personality disorders or, or people who are so-called neurotic, is, is finding a way into very variations of the closed system where we need to make contact with parts of the self who have been shut away. Um, Just a word about the term multiple personality disorder. The term was changed in, I believe, 1994 uh, to dissociative identity disorder, um, in part because what we see, we don't really see full-blown personalities. What we see is identity fragments, self-states, that are extremely dissociated. Just to to add uh, that these are all parts of one personality, all parts of one person. So then I guess the question is, what what does it look like? What does maybe health or kind of the the transformative moment in treatment become? Is it an integration of self-states? Is it a fluidity between self-states? The word integration is, is a tricky one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. <laughs> in, in dealing with DID, dissociative identity disorder, we, we think of integration in terms of getting greater communication um, between the dissociated parts of the self. Um, but... It, it depends on how you interpret it. We don't want to have the idea, have an ideal self be something like pea soup. We don't want to a blending. We we still have different self states, and we started out developmentally in having different behavioral states 
uh, Putnam uh, has done, and before him, Wolf have done research on how the infant has different behavioral states such as elimination, waking, fussy, awakeness, deep sleep. Um, and these all get connected sequentially. And even emotional states get labeled by parents or by others as you're feeling out of sorts today or you're feeling angry today or, oh, you must have been confused. The child doesn't learn that until, speaking of a two-person model, until other people have helped him to understand that aspect and label those aspects of himself, which then get connected to other parts of the self so that we don't start out so-called integrated. We start out very separated and so that we still are, even ideally, we're in an ideal model of health. It's, it's an issue of being connected to different parts of the self, having them ac- accessible. I think if you start out, a priori with the idea that you're going to integrate someone with DID, um, you're on the wrong track. I don't think that should be the decision of the clinician. Mm-hmm. I think that's the decision of the patient. Mm-hmm. Many DID patients don't want to be integrated. They want to be more aware of the different ways of being themselves, and they want to uh, heal the amnesia. They don't, that's what's so very disruptive part of what's so very disruptive. Um, and I don't think we think in terms of integration anymore. I, I, one, what's most important is that the, the dissociative barriers that have caused so much compartmentalization, that the work is to reduce and help eliminate the dissociative barriers so that the different ways of being me are all sharing experience, if not simultaneously, the capacity to communicate experience. When the two of you are are working, do you work with trauma uh, regardless of the patient who's who's there with you? Do you see trauma of some kind with every patient, or is there a different way of working with when you've identified um, something or other in in a particular person. Sometimes people come in for treatment wanting to work on a particular trauma. Um, but often you'll find people who will say that things were great and then you start to work and it turns out there was a lot of trauma, especially a lot of interpersonal trauma. And one of the issues is something that that uh, Fairbairn and uh, Bowlby the attachment theorists have have identified a lot is the the importance of being positively attached to the parent or the caregiver and that people will tune out or dissociate all kinds of horrors in order to maintain that attachment. Bowlby had hypothesized originally that in the service of survival that, um, that mammals and primates are attached in the sense that to stay close to the protecting figure, the parent, and that serves evolutionarily to protect survival. Later attachment theories have talked about the importance of regulating fear, which attachment also does. But the important thing is that that's a big determinant of dissociating aspects that are terrifying is, is to maintain the attachment. 
I'm not 100% sure I understand the question, but what I, what I would like to say is I think, I shouldn't speak for both of us, but I think Elizabeth and I bring a certain kind of attention and sensitivity to the issue of trauma. And, of course, um, nobody escapes developmental trauma because nobody has the perfect parent or perfect mother. There are all kinds of, there are different kinds of trauma. So I think we pay careful attention to historical experience and how, what the nature of current relationships, how they look and how they might reflect earlier experience. I'm glad you said that. I think one of the things that I really, I mean, we kind of know in the field, but I think your book really emphasizes is the the connection between trauma and attachment. And as a, a development and evolution from maybe the previous way of looking, I think you mentioned it, Elizabeth, of, of kind of the idea of splitting and uh, borderline personality and also kind of um, early object, kind of Mahler-type model of, of separation individuation, that this is kind of an advancement or, 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 an, or an elaboration on that, a kind of an improvement. Yes. I, uh, I'm not sure I understood yeah. your question entirely. Can just, you say Just more? saying that um, – that it seems like this is a step beyond where where Kernberg was in terms of uh, of a borderline uh, treatment. Yes. A borderline a borderline condition was cons- is now right. considered kind of a, tra- a trauma, yes. and and a dissociative yes. the- a dissociative issue rather than what Kernberg and and uh, object constancy in the, that language. Right. right. It, it's actually very confusing in that uh, now in in ICD eleven they do have a complex trauma disorder um, that has some differences from borderline. and But borderline is so hard to, to measure. You can have different aspects of it. So the borderline conditions, though, really resides in the idea of the primitive defenses, so-called primitive defenses of, of basically splitting projective identification, primitive idealization, devaluation, omnipotence, But splitting can be seen as a form of dissociation in the sense that in in splitting, the person, they they don't have amnesia for what happened. But what has been split is the affect, the affect states, the affect of of needy attachment versus rage. And those that a person cannot be in the same, those two states at one time. So we can, I think we're really, it's a work in progress where we, how we understand this. We're not just talking about s- such severe psychopathology. A, a colleague and friend of ours, Rich Sheffitz, who has a chapter in the book that's very moving, um, co- uh, coined the phrase, isolation of affect is the poor man's dissociation. <laughs> and if, if for anyone who's worked with an obsessional, I don't mean, I don't mean OCD, I mean an obsessional character, that's a dissociative process. Mm-hmm. The, the patient can think, the person can think really well, but he can't feel or she can't feel. And feeling is very, very dangerous. Well, after reading the book, this was especially helpful to me, um, was really seeing, uh, really using some of the concepts in the book with people in obsessional style or schizoid style and kind of seeing it in terms of a a, a trauma dissociation is very helpful. We have a colleague, Sheila Schuster-Hockberg, who uh, wrote a chapter Mm -hmm. uh, that was published in in, uh, Journal of Trauma and Dissociation, earlier Dissociation, um, about 
a person with seemingly OCD, and it was unresolvable uh, until she discovered that each time the person thought he had locked the door, it was a different part. So the parts didn't remember, and that's why the person had to keep checking. Just another word about the uh, obsessional. Um, the obsessional is divorced from his body. And one of the goals of the, of the work is to reintroduce the obsessional to his body so he can know what he feels. Just some other chapters in the book you might want to comment on. The Kleinian chapter, um, um, not the author's name isn't coming to mind. Uh, Joe Newworth. Joe Newworth was, was an excellent chapter. And also the chapter on dreams. Maybe that would also be interesting for people to hear about is, is dreams and dissociation. Richard Cluft wrote that chapter on dreams and dissociation. But again, this shows how DID can be sort of a template because many people with DID will have dreams, different personality, different parts of the self will have different dreams often. And so they, or they can have different perspectives on the same dream. And so if you look at it that way, uh, in terms of this structuring of the self, in terms of more or less dissociative parts, it says a lot about how all of us dream and remember our dreams. When, when we're working with um, someone, who, when we know the person has DID, it's important to find out what part of you had the dream. Whose dream is this? And Elizabeth, you wrote a very interesting chapter in your book, um, An Understanding and Treating a Dissociative Identity Disorder on Dream. One, a, 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 a person had, in one state of, in one of the dreams was that he had thrown another altar out the window. And then another dream was of that altar who had been thrown out the window. And, uh, but one of his uh, really uh, chilling dreams was of being a scientist and, studying in a terribly formidable danger that trees start basically took out the that looked like bones took out the heart of a child who had stepped off a n- narrow path and well it wasn't really the heart it was the self they took out the self and and he heard this curtling stream, scream and then had another dream that he was a four-year little four-year-old little girl all of a sudden being murdered by these bony branches. I, I also have a, a chapter coming out in a, a book that Jean Petroselli and Sarah Schoen are, are editing. don't recall the full title of the book. And in, in my chapter, I talk about a patient who had a dream where one part of her sexually assaulted and raped another part of her. And as it came down to, it was really in the dream a reenactment of um, early sexual childhood sexual abuse, and uh, you did mention uh, Jean Petroselli has an excellent chapter as well on eating disorders. And um, are there kind of unique aspects to that formulation with with dissociation? Well, the title of her chapter is "Who Moved My Swiss Cheese," <laughs> and, and so I mean, basically, dissociative holes in the psyche um, in which the hunger and emotional hunger is dissociated, and self-regulation is not accessible because of the dissociation. 
um, in that we have a, a number of the way we structured the book is that the first part is a history of complex trauma in which we have our chapters and then Ferenzi and F- Freud and and John A. to lead out. And then we have different models that are addressed. And uh, the Jungian model by Kalshed, the uh, Dodie Goldman's model on uh, Winnicott, the Kleinian model by Joe Neuwirth, uh, a chapter by Philip Bromberg called It Never Entered My Mind on the interpersonal model, and then an anthropological model by Betsy Hegeman. And then we have... Uh, another section on aspects of psychoanalytic treatment of complex trauma and dissociation, in which there's a chapter on dreams by Cluft, Jean Petroselli's article on, on eating disorders, uh, dissociative attunement by Karen Hoppenwasser, which is initially hard to understand, but it's really a cutting-edge concept about how we can be attuned but dissociatively attuned and uh, it's it's uh, it's it's really worth reading. And then Wilma Bucci's so chapter on divide and multiply, uh, Rich Shafitz's chapter on diagnosis, and then Valerie Sinison's on on um, children and DID. And then we have research in terms of neurophysiological research. No, it's really full. And, and also, uh, one thing that struck me was the concise, the concision of the chapters. It was really like you'd read them and they were so just packed with information, but also um, brief enough that one could read them kind of like each one in a sitting whenever they want, whenever you wanted to. And it was really kind of, um, I, I found it a, a very good, a very kind of interesting read and very, um, j- just very, very concise. I guess I'll use that word again. I, I can't think of another word for it, but it is really, really great. I can't tell you how many hours we have spent and, and, and you know, sometimes very um, uh, sadly having to cut um, because people often write more than we could include and often very valuable material. We are very grateful to um, our contributors because we had to ask many of them to cut a fair amount of their, their original contributions in order to fit it. I just want to put in a plug for Jean's book. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I found it. The name of the book is Unknowable, Unspeakable, and Unsprung, Navigating the Thrill and Danger of Living Amidst Truth, Fantasy, and Privacy. Well, we'll definitely get to that, too, in a future, <laughs> a future podcast. Um, perhaps a word of what it's like to work with, um, with trauma and dissociation on a daily basis, and maybe a word of uh, maybe to the clinician of, of any special... Um, kind of caveats or self-care for people who work with uh, with the ID. You definitely need to be able to take some deep breaths after many of the sessions. Often, that some of the stories of horror are just are very very painful to hear, and you have to you have to have developed in yourself an ability to tolerate it. And um, it takes it takes a, a while. Uh, I think it takes one. It takes a lot of work on oneself as well uh, to be able to tolerate this kind of horror and to tolerate the kind of things that people have done to themselves and others as a result of trying to manage, often unsuccessfully or not successfully enough, their levels of pain. And had you asked this question at the beginning, it would have been a very different conversation. Uh-huh. Um, Working with traumatized patients and DID patients is 
probably the most moving part of my work. I mean, I like working with many different kinds of patients, but this is the most moving and most frustrating and most painful and most rewarding Mm -hmm. part of my practice. Um, And it's very, it's incumbent on, on us as clinicians to really be aware of what's being put inside of us that that what we absorb or internalize is can be overwhelming yeah. and it's it can be dangerous to bring that stuff home with you dangerous in a sense of it it has a can have a profound impact on your relationship at home i need to find ways to to somewhere to put it in one in oneself but i want to emphasize again what Shelley was saying about the most rewarding work. It, it's hard. I have called it in another paper, in a paper I had it, having Richard Gartner's forthcoming book, um, uh, and I've called it The Aesthetics of Truth, in that often working with DID or highly traumatized patients, that there's, you're, you're speaking to, to very basic kinds of emotions, and they're speaking to you. And um, it's it's not it's not layered over with levels of social desirability, and so that it's it it's it's a very very strong interpersonal really kind of experience. <laughs> so so the countertransference, uh, to use that term, response or or reaction could differ and, and kind of vary widely here. Okay, we have the. Oh, right, for Richard Gardner's book, Trauma and Counter-Trauma, Resilience and Counter-Resilience, Insights from Psychoanalysis and Trauma Experts, right? I have a paper in there on on the importance of working with dissociative people and the importance of of uh, recognizing it in the, in the, as some traumas can become counter-traumas, the therapist, and then one's own defense, in this case, my own defense, my counter-trauma, in terms of her trauma, that was my trauma in response to hers, and both of us working it out together. I also have a chapter in the book, um, and it is the interpersonal relational field, counter-trauma and counter-resilience, the impact of treating trauma and dissociation. Before we finish, we're coming down to the end. Uh, just a question about training. Do you think trauma is being um, addressed adequately in, in training programs? Do you think there's, like, if you had an ideal class or uh, subject matter that you'd like to add, do you, what would you do? Dissociation. Uh, Manhattan Institute is uh, one of the few institutes that now explicitly has uh, courses on dissociation, but many of the trauma institutes have recognized, and the institutes have incorporated trauma, but often they don't recognize dissociation. And that's really important because to me, I've defined in dissociative mind that trauma is that which creates dissociation. That is that which is overwhelming, even if it's small. Uh, it's, if it's overwhelming, it's caused dissociation. And so we're really looking at dissociation. I don't think that um, that trauma and dissociation as part of a core curriculum in psychoanalytic training is really present. It may be implicit in some courses, but not specifically. Oh, it's, it's an adjunct. It's yes. an ad, yes. it's, 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 and now we're going to look at trauma. 
do you think it's just that the curriculum hasn't caught up yet, or is there something else at play there? There's dissociation in the curriculum. <laughs> that <laughs> it hasn't been brought together. That trauma, that the Im- importance of trauma on the mind, and in terms of how we're working with the mind in psychoanalysis, hasn't been really understood. Right, Elizabeth and I do co-teach a course at NYU Postdoc on dissociation and and DID. But that's unusual. Okay, so we're coming to the end of our time. Is there anything else that you'd like to cover before we uh, before we end? Anything that we haven't gotten to that you think would be be important to discuss? Um, I'd just like to add, and if I didn't say it before, but I think we're on the brink of a new era in which we're reconceptualizing how the mind is structured and how it works dissociatively and dynamically uh, in terms of together in terms of its parts. I think I just want to say um, that it was a labor of love coming up with this book, editing the book, and it was a lot of fun. It was a fun and an honor working with Elizabeth. Um, And if we had to do it all over again, I I would... I'd do it. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. (laughs) So thank you, uh, Dr. Howell and Dr. Iskowitz, for, uh, for joining us today. I think it's been a great conversation. This is Christopher Bandini for New Books in Psychoanalysis. Until next time.